I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I'm here with my good friend and colleague, my favorite co-host, Mr. Sean Latimer. I'm the favorite. Hello, everyone. (laughs) I tell anybody who's here, they are the favorite. (laughs) Hey, uh, we're going to be writing not writing, we're going to be talking about an article today called Going Through Withdrawals, because I love a good pun. That is pretty bad. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's a good one. So here's, uh, you know where these come from. I wake up at uh, in the middle of the night and I'm like, oh, I should write on that and then kind of lean over and grab my phone and put a few notes. I'm like, oh, I'll write an article on that. So this is where it came from. I was thinking about real estate investors. Do you have some friends that are real estate investors? Yes. Okay, that was an easy answer. <laughs> I've found, and I want to know if you agree, with my friends that are real estate investors, uh, and there's nothing bad about this. I- I'm just making an observation. They are really passionate about real estate investing, and it's almost like myopic. Like, that's the only way to invest. Right. Um, and that they've concluded, like, if you ask them about that, they have these kind of ready answers on one, two, three, here's the reasons why, and here's why... Uh, and I don't think that they're like evangelists that everybody has to be that way, but they're very convinced that's the right way to invest. And my question to you, I have a thesis, but why? I think it could be a couple things. Uh, the The one that comes to mind the fastest is uh, sometimes people, they end up with a surplus of money and they maybe don't understand the stock market or they've never been involved, but they do remember their parents buying a house for one price and it being worth more today. And so it's pretty easy for them to say, oh, wow. That's something I can see. It's something I understand. That's what I'm going to do. And if you've invested in real estate the past 10 years or so, you probably had success with it. So you're thinking like, oh, wow, I'm going to keep doing that. And uh, I I think it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because then it's like, I think this is good. Oh, it was really good. This is the best way to do it. And then they hear the horror stories of other types of investments. They go, good thing I didn't do that. This is the way to do it. Yeah, I agree. And then they kind of... uh Again, no criticism. This is just the observations we've made is that the answer is like, it's a tangible asset. Mm -hmm. I can touch it. I can feel it. I know it exists. Uh, People don't feel that same way about stocks, right? right? It it feels uh, murky. Uh, Can't put your hands on it, especially we don't even have certificates really anymore. Um, It's all digital. So it's a tangible asset. Um, I can use leverage, right? I can uh, put 20% of my money down and this silent business partner who's the bank is willing to put 80% down. Uh, what are some other things that I've heard? Um, you know, historically, uh, like you mentioned, I, I talked to uh, a coworker, a colleague the other day, and I was, uh, the, her parents bought uh, their house 60 years ago. Uh, and I was like, what was the, the price? And she said $13,000. So wow. you can kind of anchor to those things and see it. I want to conclude that most real estate investors don't tell me the real reason that they love real estate investing. I'm going to tell you right now. So uh, worth, worth the price of admission. I think that they love the certainty. What do I mean? What's the certainty? What generates returns for a real estate investor? They're hoping, one, that the property will appreciate. Mm-hmm. But two, if they're buy and hold investors, somebody's going to be renting the property. They love the income. Yeah. They love the cash flow. And if you look at real estate historically, I'm not going to anchor to an exact number, but something in the range of half of those returns were generated from the income. Right. So it makes me conclude that human beings don't like uncertainty. We know that we can't predict the future. Like we just know that. We don't, we don't have the crystal ball. We want the second best thing. We want something of high probability and high predictability. Yeah. 
income provides that. So I would argue that the the greatest reason that real estate investors are passionate about real estate, and they can't always pinpoint this, is they love the fact that half the returns come rain or shine in the form of rental income. That's true. Which leads me now to today's article. I'm thinking about where we find ourselves in 2022. We're in the month of April, which means we just finished the first quarter. And like David Bonson always alludes to, all investors are investing for a reason. They want to generate a return that they can later withdraw to use for something. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our clients are in the phase of life where they want to enjoy the fruits of their labor and they're withdrawing from the portfolio. Yeah. They they have this nest egg and, and now they want to start, they want to find the most efficient way to spend those assets on whether it's retirement or their legacy or, or whatever that may be. And on this podcast and on the blog, a lot of times we'll go back in financial history, which we'll do today and pick particular times, but let's not go far today. Let's just go to the first quarter. If you had a nest egg, as Sean put it, and you walked in to January 1st of 2022 with an expectation that you were going to withdraw, I don't know, let's say you had a million dollars and your financial plan said you can withdraw 40,000. Well, you went through three months, my guess Question. Yes. Are we, we going to uh, set it up how they're currently invested or what type of investments they would use? Well, I'm going to make it easy because my guess is that their stocks and bonds have probably behaved pretty similarly. Okay. So for this scenario, and then we'll kind of go through and we can unpack a lot of things, but you know, you had a million dollars, you walked into the year, you were going to withdraw 40,000. Okay. Why did you come up with 40,000? Because you and your financial planner decided 4% was a good number. Now you got through the first three months, you're ready to take your withdrawal from April, right? And you're like, okay, where am I going to take this withdrawal from? And like Mm -hmm. you said, there could be different allocations. It could be half stocks, half bonds, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, so on and so forth. So you look over your stock portfolio and maybe you have it designed in a way, and this would be pretty typical for an investor this year, where perhaps this hypothetical person, their stock portfolio is down 7%. So they've learned over time, all right, down 7%. I don't want to have to sell something at a depressed value to create... Yeah, so I have my safe bucket. Yeah, so then they're going to turn their head and say, now I'm going to go withdraw from my bonds. And then they're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Bonds are down (laughs) 9. Yeah, bonds are down 7 or 8%. And they're like, "Uh, what do I do now? So the whole reason I wanted to write this article is that when you look at a textbook and when you talk about rates of return, it's positive numbers. It's very easy to look at. But when you are living that out, it's not always that clean. Sometimes it's a little messy. Yeah. So what is an investor to do if they come to this predicament that says, hey, my portfolio was a million. Now today on April 1st, again, we're making up hypotheticals. Now it's worth 900000 All of a sudden, that $40,000 withdrawal, what is it no longer? It's no longer 4%. It's a bigger number. Yeah. So I think what investors have to decide and what's difficult is how are you going to build your financial plan? Are you going to withdraw based on a percentage or are you going to withdraw based on a dollar amount? Are you going to increase that dollar amount because of inflation um, or is that dollar amount always going to be the same? And I think those little decisions matter. Now, let's say a financial planner says, hey, you should withdraw based on a percentage. Okay, well, 4% of a smaller number means it's going to be less for you. Right. So are you all of a sudden going to pivot and change your lifestyle? Probably not. (laughs) So what is an investor to do? 
Not a rhetorical question. What is an investor to do, Sean Latimer, your financial advisor? No, I think the allocation does matter. And uh, unfortunately, I do come across a lot of people who have investment portfolios that are a portion for growth and a portion for safety. And, And that is the strategy. This part I take profits from in good years, and I use that to fund retirement expenses. If markets are down, because that's always the first thing is, well, you don't want to sell principal at depressed values. Well, if markets are down, then I go to this other category. Well, this year is kind of the, how often does this happen where interest rates are rising rapidly, bonds are down more than stocks? I, I, I don't remember recently. So I'd probably say the last 12 years, that probably would work really well, that strategy, right? It's it's historically rare. You could actually go back over the last 50 years and you'd find it's it's historically rare that you'd find a calendar year where both stocks and bonds were down the same year. Right. I, I think you'd probably only find two or three occurrences and, and it would actually be somewhat small uh, in the most in the last decade, the one that I'm thinking of. Uh, both were down slightly, like stocks were down seven or eight and, and bonds were like down one or two mm-hmm. in, in a particular year. The problem that I think with that thesis though is that interest rates are so low now yeah. um, that any rise in interest rate has a a, a negative impact, impact right. on, on current bondholders. So kind of the conclusion that I'm coming to and, and, and that I'm laying out in this article, this is the reason I fell in love with being a dividend investor. And it's the same reason that my brothers and sisters that love real estate investing, it's because of this feeling of certainty that you get when you look at your expected rates of return. And a large portion of that comes from income rather than appreciation. What we're saying right now is that if you're relying on your withdrawals to come from an appreciating portfolio, what do you do when that portfolio depreciates? And um, I would argue that a prudent answer there would be to build a portfolio that generates income, much like real estate does rental income, where that income would be sufficient to cover your expenses And if you can do your diligence and create that income where it is somewhat insulated from the way that the markets behave, that is even greater for you that you can have that reliability and consistency of income. All right, Trevor, I'll throw you a curveball. So you just made such a great case. Should I just go buy a bunch of rental properties? Why even deal with the stock market? You can. I mean, ultimately, it's up to you. So every asset has a risk, right? So what did we see during the COVID moment? People stopped paying rent. People stopped paying rent. And you couldn't kick them out. You couldn't kick them out. And there's this idea where even some states were saying like, hey, we're giving this kind of forbearance window that you, you had to do. So we we glean from that that there is a relationship between risk and reward, mm-hmm. right? That obviously if you go into this endeavor, it can be rewarding, but there are things that you have to account for. And maybe in your back of the napkin plan, you didn't account for a pandemic because you know, maybe you said like post-Spanish flu, we really haven't seen something like that. Right. But you gave me a curveball and life will give you curveballs too. For sure. So I think the other problem with just buying real estate, and again, for some investors, that's going to be the answer and that's going to be where they're comfortable. I would say that the liquidity, meaning how easily you could pivot from um, one asset to another will be difficult. And for some investors, if you go into that realm, you have some dependence on banking. 
Mm-hmm. And when uh, regulations and expectations and interest rates change, it can cause some issues for your own financial plan. Yeah. And we, we were just talking about this. If someone had uh, more equity than they expected in their home, but interest rates are higher, it's not that easy to access it. I feel like that somebody is me that you're talking about. <laughs> so I just uh, purchased a new home and, and the way that I, I, I structured it, right, I, I ended up doing a loan that was really attractive. But in my mindset, it was a temporary solution. I say temporary, like a a seven-year solution. But I was definitely surprised where we see the fixed interest rates today, right? They they are around 4.7% in that realm. Um, I don't personally want to refinance to a 4.7% loan. So that was something that probabilistically could happen. It wasn't totally factored in because I've become uh, accustomed to Mortgages at three percent, like low rates. <laughs> yeah, so those things become difficult. So uh, it does mean that the design of somebody's portfolio, whether it's stocks or bonds or real estate, you should be thoughtful of the risks. But where I want to draw a lot of attention, and especially in the article, is what we just experienced in the first quarter. We're talking about something being down seven or eight percent. That doesn't feel as drastic, right? But we can go back in history. Uh, And we don't have to go back too far where we can look in that COVID moment where the stock market from peak to trough, from top to bottom, had a change in value of negative 36%. Or go back to 2008, and in that moment, it went down 50%. If you're listening to this, you're familiar with those numbers. You've heard them before. What I want to, to try to encourage you to do is that if you were not a withdrawler in those periods and you were just an accumulator it's much easier to kind of dust your shoulders off, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a withdrawaler and, and you don't have sufficient income to meet your expectations on what you want to withdraw every month, our same million-dollar hypothetical person that goes and grabs a statement that shows 500000 and they were going to take 40000 out, well, all of a sudden, they're taking out 8% of their mm-hmm. portfolio. And, and I'll show a graph in, in, in the article showing that there is a chance that you might have retired with a the right amount of money, the wrong design of a portfolio, and you could outlive your nest egg. And that's why what we call in finance this idea of sequence of returns risk is so important. And one thing I would really encourage our investors to think about, it's a, it's a really simple question. Where are my withdrawals going to come from? It makes sense. And I think that's the conversation of, what type of type of investments are they holding? I, I mentioned it at the beginning. Are we going to set up the type of investments? Because the last twelve years, people have had a lot of success using uh, index funds. You know, and uh, the the idea if you're selling principal to fund retirement expenses is a dangerous game because I don't think the next twelve years will look the same. And so, if you do find yourself having that negative sequence uh, of selling principal to fund expenses. It could backfire because there probably will prices probably will recover at some point, but you'll have less invested at that part to, that you won't benefit. Yeah. So then you ask that simple question, which kind of leads to the sequence of questions. I would say for most investors that are planning on retiring this year or next year or whatnot, you said, "Hey, where are you going to get your withdrawals from?" And they're going to say, "From my portfolio." Mm-hmm. And you go look at their portfolio, and Let's say their stock portfolio has income of 1.5% and their bond portfolio has income of 1.5%. So what's the next logical question? Are you going to withdraw more than 1.5%? And, 
and they're going to laugh yes. at you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. They're going to be like, yeah, of course. I didn't save enough money to just withdraw 1.5%. I grew up believing that I could withdraw 4 4%. Yep. So do simple math. And that, that's the conservative number. Conservative number. Because back then, interest rates were higher. CDs were paying 4%. Yeah. So then you ask the next question, where's that other 2.5% going to come from? And the answer is principal. So you're going to have to be selling assets to cover those expenses. And what is your hope? That your sale of those assets is good timing. What's the downside? When you saw the markets draw down 50% in 2008, the recovery period was not instant. So that's the part that I I have trouble computing or learning to communicate or or help uh, investors with is you can say you're going to be patient. And I love the idea, but it's not that you're going to fast for three years. You're going to eat. Yeah. It's not that you're going to have a, no no mortgage or no roof over your head for three years. You got somewhere to live. And if you tell me, "Well, I'm just going to pay off my mortgage," well, you're going to have property taxes. You're going to have insurance. Like there are expenses to be paid. I personally feel more comfortable designing a portfolio where the actual income production matches somebody's expense needs. And we can build a portfolio or our intent is to build a portfolio where that income is reliable, sustainable, and growing. Like that's kind of the mantra of what we're trying to do. But for me, that definitely gets me to the same place, those real estate investors, where they're this idea of like, hey, I don't have the crystal ball, but if you tell me I'm going to get X rate of return, I would love it Yeah. if a majority of that came rain or shine. True. So I think uh, it's pretty simple for our investors. I think you start with those line of questioning on, hey, where are you going to get your withdrawals from? And this is always good financial planning. One good question leads to another. Okay, this is where you're going to get from. Now let's play out scenarios where that would be unfriendly um, and kind of go through there. I would say this is all, all this to say, and I don't know if you're in the same place as me, but like personally, this is why I fell in love with dividend growth investing not that I came from a background as an analyst and looked and said, oh, you know, historically this did, you know, XYZ versus ABC or whatnot. I came at it as a certified financial planner and said, oh, wow. Like I run so many tests, we call them Monte Carlo tests, whatever, to stress test a portfolio. It takes so much of that burden away when the income production can just be sufficient to match the expenses. Not to mention managing the client's behavior, which we've talked a lot uh, about a lot. If you're owning something and you're hoping to sell principal each year or during certain years, it requires a lot of patience and discipline from the investor. And uh, that's not always the easiest thing to communicate. Yeah. And I think that the, an interesting response, I don't, I don't know if you get this a lot, but we kind of go through this thesis and philosophy. And sometimes people will tell me, you know, that sounds great. I really like it. But we obviously know, and, they, and then they make this empirical statement we obviously know that if we, we go the dividend growth route, we're giving up larger appreciation. We're giving up larger returns. And is that assumption true? I don't believe so. Because if they are accumulating, having those growing dividends reinvest into more shares during good times and bad times, I believe that compounding growth is going to accomplish a, a similar outcome. Yeah, exactly. We can't we can't say with certainty what those outcomes will be. I mean, uh, you take two uh, investment horses and race them against each other. Nobody knows what the future has in store. But what I would say is that you can't come and say, you know, because this, because you're a real estate investor and you're drawing some most, most from income, that you're actually giving up some level of, of return. No, 
each horse is going to be measured by its total return. Mm -hmm. And what our preference or what we're leaning into from a financial planning standpoint is that we would love it if uh, if, inco- if, if our total returns made up of appreciation plus income, uh, it would be our preference to get it from income. But that doesn't mean that it has uh, a guaranteed headwind to total return. Right. And what you will see if you if you study markets and market history is you'll see that different strategies and philosophies and theories do come in and out of favor. Um, and we are uh, very familiar with sitting with clients and talking about decades. And we say, hey, will this decade look like this? But the decade before it looked like this. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's important for investors to understand that uh, they can lean into something that is more appropriate to their financial plan and potentially produce a better outcome as well. So I think we'd be beating it up if we said more than this. Um, I'll encourage you to go to the article uh, where we will kind of run some hypotheticals on what it looks like and when you make these withdrawals against a portfolio that is declining in value and the burden it can create for an investor. We will ask that you rate the podcast, five stars are preferred, all comments are welcome. You can reach Sean or Trevor at tom at thebonsagroup.com. That's T-O-M at thebonsagroup.com. And then hopefully you will join us next week where we will share more of our thoughts on money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.